Hey everyone, before we begin, we wanted to say that we recorded this episode before the tragic passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RBT. Since this episode is all about reproductive rights and healthcare, we felt it was important to say a thing or two honoring her legacy and her dedication to women's rights. RBG will forever be remembered as a spearhead for justice. Her role has been cemented in the advancement of gender equality in our country's history. But she also fought for the immigrants, the LGBTQ plus community and other marginalized groups. RBG leaves behind a huge legacy to upkeep, one that was dedicated to equality and justice for everyone. The timing of her death raises serious concerns and questions about the future of our country. While her last wish was that her seat be filled after the election, we don't know what will happen and we don't know what the election results will be. We mourn her death, but we must also call to the agency of the situation. It's serious, everyone. And as a country, we have to mobilize we must vote, but we have to do so much more. Let's carry on with her legacy and continue to fight for justice for all. And now to our today's episode with Mira Shah. Hello and welcome to Immigrantly. I am your host, Sadia Khan. So today's guest is a pretty amazing woman. If you ask Dr. Meera Shah what she does, she'll tell you that she is an abortion provider. She is that, but she is also a tireless advocate for accessible, safe abortions. Meera is the Chief Medical Officer of Planned Parenthood, Hudson Peconic in New York. She's also a fellow with the Physicians for Reproductive Health Mira has recently published a book called You're the Only One I Have Told, The Stories Behind Abortion, which aims to humanize abortion. I've read most of it and believe me, it is the most inspiring and informative book. As a mother of two young girls, I've learned so much about how to approach the topic of sex, abortion and reproductive rights. Those who know me and my podcast are aware that I come from a culture where, generally speaking, and I'm sure there are exceptions, people don't talk about sex, especially with their kids, period. No matter how emancipated, liberal or educated you may think you are, you just don't talk about this particular topic. I know I have come a long way in terms of feeling comfortable about navigating this space, but to be honest, I feel I haven't done enough. And this book has given me a roadmap to do more. And I'm pretty sure if you are a parent, after listening to this episode, you will also think through some of these things. So let's get started. Non-consensual sex can involve many other acts and we need yeah. to get into deeper, more nuanced discussions with young people about how to say no, how to feel comfortable saying yes, how to feel comfortable saying to slow down or that they're not ready. 
um, and engaging in those, those tough conversations. How is it going? Good. <laughs> I mean, I think that 2020 has proved itself to be a really um, exciting year. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with the COVID pandemic, as well as the upcoming election, I think that we've seen changes in our personal lives, professional lives, in healthcare, in policy surrounding healthcare, and specifically abortion, which, you know, I, I work so, you know, closely to protect. But yeah, things have been great. <laughs> so talking about that, Mira, first I want to congratulate you on this incredible book, by the way. I am reading it. And to me, it humanizes both the service providers and patients and gives a very different perspective on debate around abortion, right? So what I admire about your book is your approach in addition to advocating for safe and affordable reproductive services. You talk a lot about compassion. Mm -hmm. And we will delve into that. But before that, I want you to talk a little bit about the conversation you had with older women at a local Target in South Carolina, because reading that exchange literally gave me goosebumps. And it's pretty much the essence of what we are going to talk about on the show today. So let's start with that conversation. Okay, definitely. As I mentioned in my book, I was very private about the work that I did out of fear and, you know, feeling a little bit of shame, a little bit of stigma, um, mm. knowing very well how important the work that I did was on the lives of my patients. Still, I, you know, definitely felt the impact of sort of the the larger narrative around abortion and how these conservative politicians have framed it to be this shameful mm. thing in our society. And, and a lot of physicians and providers who practice abortion care do fear for their lives and also mm. fear, you know, experiencing any conflict, even just, just in casual dialogue. And so for that reason, I had always been pretty quiet about my work. And then it wasn't until I went home to South Carolina and, you know, made just sort of my routine trip to Target when I found myself in, in a greeting card aisle talking to an older woman who I immediately judged um, mm. as someone who must be conservative and must be anti-abortion, right? And, yeah. you know, and that in itself was my fault, as I soon realized, because, you know, she one thing led to another and she told me that she had had an abortion and in fact she had two. And it wasn't until that moment that I realized, you know what? We assume so much about one another and we are so quick to jump to conclusions about one another and I was guilty of it in that moment myself. And because of that, I immediately pegged this woman as someone who, you know, would judge me for the work that I did when here she was having had an abortion herself, having had two. And I could feel the relief on her end and I felt relief on my end. Um, and that's what started me on this journey of being more open about my work. And I found that as soon as I did, the floodgates opened and I just was on the receiving end of story after story after story. Mm -hmm. 
and it was truly wonderful and truly magical. I've learned so much just about the human experience over the past several years that I've been doing this work. That, that, that's where it all started was this encounter with a woman in Target. That was the first time she was confiding in someone. She had not even mentioned it to her husband. How did you feel the burden of someone else's um, experience? You know, it's the same feeling that I have with my patients in my exam room. I feel fortunate mm. and I feel lucky that they feel comfortable enough to share their experience with me, right? That, mm. you know, not only am I finding myself doing the procedures, but I find myself hearing little glimpses of their lives, right? The number mm. of children mm. they have, or if they're in school, um, maybe the hardships that they've been facing because of COVID. It's, it's very common for me to hear these stories now. And I feel every time I hear a story now, I feel the same way that I did with that woman in Target. I mm. feel grateful and I feel like I've learned something. Like I've learned something, like I said, about the human experience. And in abortion immediately becomes framed as this normal experience that occurs mm. in so many of our lives. Exactly. And for that reason, I, I, I strongly believe and know that it should be protected. Exactly. But Mira, there is so much misconception around abortion, right? We know that whether it's cultural or societal. As a professional abortion provider, what are some of the most common misconceptions around abortion that you have encountered? The list is long. Um, mm. And so this is, this is a great question. Um, I think some of the most common misconceptions, or I know that some of the most common misconceptions is that abortion is not common. And as evidenced by my book, that's one of the, you know, the points that I try to make by illustrating the variety of stories that I've presented, that it is incredibly common. Um, one out of four women has an abortion in her lifetime, which means that that's most definitely someone you know, someone you love. But unfortunately, it's, you know, surrounded by so much shame and stigma that prevents even your closest loved ones from sharing their story. So that that's that's a that's a really common misconception that that abortion is rare um mm. and that and that it's not common. Some other uh, misconceptions is that, you know, abortion impacts fertility. So, and I hear this a lot when I'm seeing patients that, you know, will I be able to have a child in the future? Now mm. is not the right time, but that is definitely in my life plan to become a parent. And, right. you know, that's an easy one for me to dispel because the, the science has told us time and time again that abortion does not impact future fertility at all. Some people will ask me, well, if I've had multiple abortions, will that mm -hmm. impact my future fertility? And the answer is still no. If there's any particular um, myths that, you're, that you've heard or that you would want me to talk about further, I'd be happy to, to you know, kind of break those down. So for me, other than myths, I am more interested in framing moral argument around it. Because as someone who is pro-choice, I often struggle with responding to some of the moral arguments that pro-lifers will raise. So to me, it's your body, your choice. But sometimes people will bring up value of life or life starts at conception. And I honestly don't know how to respond to that effectively. 
and in your opinion, what is the moral argument for abortion and how do we frame that? So this is a, it's a really great question um, and it's a big question. And that question has to be met with compassion. So if an individual mm. believes that life begins in conception, I'm not going to try to argue with them. I'm going to honor mm. that. If somebody mm. believes that, you know, an egg and a sperm come together and is a potential life, I'm not going to argue with that. I'm going to honor that. But I do think, and I, and I, you know, I say this in my book, I can, I can even read it to you, that we can trust people to make the decisions that are best for them and their bodies, decisions that make sense within the context of their unique lives. We can mm. simultaneously believe there is a potential life growing in a uterus and trust the person carrying the pregnancy to do what is right for them in their own lives. So what we have to remember is that people come at their abortion experience with their own unique perspectives, right? They have their own lived experience that you and I can't relate to, right? right. Whether right. it is, it's intersectional in terms of their gender identity, their religion, um, their socioeconomic status, the, the country in which they grew up, the language that they speak. I mean, there's so many things that play into an individual's set of values, an, an individual set of beliefs. So when I am met with these questions, my goal is not to say, well, life begins at this point or life mm. does not begin at this point because I recognize that people have a, a varied set of values. Now, in, in my book, I talk about that. I have a, I have a, a woman who is a rabbi and she has an abortion, and she talks to me about, you know, the various Jewish beliefs around ab abortion, and that, hmm. you know, many will say that life begins at the first breath, meaning right at birth, right? right. I, there's a story um, in the book about a, a young woman named Noor, and she's Muslim, and she says hmm. that, you know, she explained to me that, you know, some believe that life begins um, after three months in the uterus. Mm. And another patient of mine said her imam told her 42 days is the cutoff for when you can say that the, that the developing pregnancy has a soul. So the mm. point that I'm trying to make is that we have to honor that. We have to honor everyone's individual lived experience. And I think there's a historical context here that we also can't ignore that politicians have really taken this issue and exploited it um, for their own gain and have made it this really divisive issue when really it's not. It's the core of it is about what you believe as an individual and what you think is right for yourself and your body. And, and, and so that, that's my approach to the issue. So let's talk about the current political climate, because you brought up politicians and considering who occupies what position. Do you think that reproductive health rights are in jeopardy? So, um, yes, but let me let me let me explain that a little bit further. So hmm. we've come a long way. Um, so in 1973, um, Roe v. Wade made it so that abortion was not a crime in all 50 states. Now, what the individual states were allowed to do was to determine how accessible abortion was for people. Now, some states really took advantage of that. 
Um, so I will sometimes fly to Indiana to provide abortion care. And in Indiana, you're not allowed to use your private or public insurance to pay for the abortion. So you're sitting mm -hmm. here paying cash. Whether or not you have the means, you're putting together, you know, I've seen people like literally count out the dollar bills to pay for the service. Or, you know, you're, you're living in New York where you can use Medicaid or you can use your private insurance or you can pay, pay with cash if you want. But the majority of our patients use their insurance because, you know, healthcare is a human right. And so right. that only makes sense. Um, and it's health and, and, and abortion is healthcare. So what, what we've seen, and, you know, I'm sure you've noticed and a lot of my mm -hmm. patients, a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my friends, family members will oftentimes send me links to like these intense headlines, you know, this state has banned abortion after six weeks and this state has made it so that there's a 72 hour waiting period from when you're right. diagnosed as being pregnant to when you can actually get the procedure. And what they're essentially doing is stripping away access and also trying to challenge the existing laws so that they can go make their way up to the Supreme Court and potentially oh. reverse the Roe decision. Right. Um, and I think with the makeup of the court... Yes. That is fairly possible, right? You know, it is possible. Yeah. Um, we have seen, you know, just recently they voted in favor of the admitting privileges um, case that was heard. Um, it started in Louisiana and it was heard recently by the Supreme Court and they stuck to precedent um, and said, mm -hmm. no, you know, it is it is not necessary for an individual to have admitting privileges at a local hospital in order to provide safe abortion care. So that mm. felt like a win. That was a win. But, you know, it's chipping away at access very slowly. So while it's legal, it's not always accessible. And I do try to highlight that and the nuances of that in, in each story in, in my book. But Mira, let's talk about the worst case scenario. What if it's struck down? What will happen then? Well, if it if it struck down, we would keep fighting, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. We 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 would keep fighting, and you know, there's I don't know. It, it's hard to say. <laughs> there, you know, what 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 we are seeing now is a lot of individuals turning to managing their own abortions. Um, mm -hmm. You know, which whenever I say that, I, I always get sort of you know people raise their eyebrows and or people people's jaws drop like really that's still happening but now when i speak of self-managed abortion i'm not talking about like the coat hanger days before roe v mm. wade mm. while while there is the chance that that could happen it's pretty rare i mean with the advent of the internet people can google how to manage their own abortion and have access to pills um online as a physician i will only support and promote safe abortion Right. I just mean to say that with the current political landscape and with several states having limited access to abortion compared to others, people are already turning to managing their own abortions. Um, sometimes it's cheaper. Many of these people are able to find providers online who are able to counsel them on what to mm. expect and how to manage complications. Um, and so we would see a lot more of that. And, you know, this is, this is the, the concept of managing your own abortion has been around for a really long time. I'm actually reading a book called The, the Henna Artist. I don't know if you've heard of it uh, mm -hmm. by Alka Joshi. And, 
you know, she, it's, it's set in India after the partition. And the mm. woman in the story talks a lot about how she helps women end their early pregnancies by giving them um, a concoction of herbs. Mm. The concept has been around, right, all over the world. So it's just a matter of if an individual wants to have an abortion with a healthcare provider, that is their right. And we need to do whatever we can to preserve that. How safe is managing your own abortion? Because when you say that, the first thing that comes to my mind is, oh God, it's probably not safe. What will happen? Like, are the risks higher and how high? Well, without appropriate counseling and hmm. without, um, you know, sound medical advice, right. um, you know, the risk is higher. I, I, I can't quantify that for you necessarily, but you know, when we talk about self-managed abortion, we're talking about pills. Now, when I say pills, mm. I mean mifepristone and misoprostol. So mifepristone was FDA approved in 2000. And what it does is it's a pill that ends the pregnancy up to 11 mm. weeks. And then there's misoprostol, which the, the, the patient will take um, four pills, either put them in the cheeks to let them dissolve or insert them mm. in the vagina. And those mm. pills will induced cramping and bleeding and expulsion of the pregnancy. Mm. Um, so taking MIFI alone, we've seen with data, can be dangerous because it can increase your risk of hemorrhage. But the yeah. MISO does a really good job of, one of, my, one of my mentors used to say, what MISO does is it really organizes and controls that cramping and bleeding. So, you know, the process has a very excellent um, safety profile. It's over 99% less, or I should say it's less than 1%, less than 1% of cases um, present with any complications such as bleeding or infection. Mm -hmm. That means over 99% of cases, you know, are just fine without any sort of complication. Mira, you wrote something in your book which really stood out to me was how despite the political debate around abortion and how we see two sides, two extremes in fact, conservatives will still have access to safe abortion. Rich people will still have access to safe abortion. The law impacts brown and black communities more. The law will impact people who do not belong to a certain socioeconomic group. How do you reconcile with that dichotomy? So that's a problem with anything in healthcare, that mm. quality healthcare and kind of any healthcare service is accessible to mostly white, middle, upper class people right? Like that's just that we've seen this in history. And then the people mm -hmm. who are most at the margins, which is black and brown and LGBT people, um, have a harder time accessing quality health care. Um, and when it comes to abortion, so, so let me go back to when, when I was talking about Roe v. Wade passing in 1973, a few, year, few years later, the Hyde Amendment was passed. This was a rule that made it so that Medicaid couldn't be used to pay for abortion. Okay. Now, who are the ones, who are the people who have Medicaid, which is, you know, public insurance? It's the people mm. who are of low income and the people who are black and brown. Those are the ones right. who are, you know, most, most likely to have Medicaid. So basically what Roe v. Wade did was say that, okay, in all 50 states, an individual can access abortion care legally, 
But then a few years later, that right was taken away from black and brown people. Mm. So, I mean, and it's the same thing with pretty much every other health outcome um, and, and indicator. We see th- these same groups are being hurt and being pushed away from access time and time and time again. And so, you know, 17 states, New York being one of them, which is where I live and I practice, has made it so that Medicaid can be used to pay for abortion services. And that's because the Medicaid program receives funding from, receives federal funds and also receives state funds. So the state funded portion is used to pay for abortion, if that makes sense. So access to funding in, is one thing, but how service providers are approaching, especially black women and their concerns within this space is also extremely discriminatory, right? Why do you think that happens? So great question. And it's a very timely question. Um, with the resurgence of the racial justice movement, I feel very confident in my response to that, which that there's a lot of racism and implicit bias that goes mm. on um, in the exam room. And, you know, that's not just my opinion, that is, there's actually data and it, there's there's objective data around that, that, you know, when a black patient has a non-black healthcare provider, they're mm-hmm. less likely to receive preventative healthcare services. Um, in other words, you know, just like the basic healthcare needs met. And that is due to um, implicit bias and racism. And, you know, I give the example of Serena Williams in the in the book about how when she was complaining of chest pain and she knew exactly what was happening to her because Hmm. she had had it happen before, um, she was ignored. And then it was found out that she had had um, a blood clot in her lungs. We see this time and time again. Now, there's also data to show that black and brown people prefer their healthcare providers to be, to, to look like them. And Mm -hmm. anecdotally, I can even say this is true. Um, I've had patients say, oh, my gosh, it was so nice to see uh, that you're Indian. Um, And taking a step further, it was so nice to see see that you speak my same language. I speak Gujarati, which not many of my patients speak, but there is a community Mm -hmm. of Gujarati-speaking people near one of the health centers where I work. So they come to see me. Um, they, they specifically seek me out because they know that I look like them and I speak their same language. So it makes a huge difference, you know, and one of the things that I'm doing to address that is by being very deliberate. When I'm training residents to become abortion providers, I seek out people of color. When mm-hmm. I'm, you know, hiring, I seek out people of color. Um, you know, it's time that we make very de- deliberate we take very deliberate steps um, to changing the makeup of the healthcare force. Mira, honestly, I can't wrap my head around the fact that there is deep-seated racism in medical field. Because when I think about medicine, I think about patient-doctor relationship, which in my opinion is guided by principles of compassion and desire to alleviate human suffering. So where do you think we are going wrong? Is it the curriculum that is being taught at different medical schools, the statistics we are using? What are we doing wrong in terms of how we are prepping our doctors and healthcare providers 
to understand nuances of different cultures and ethnicities and wide spectrum of people that they interact with? Well, you know, racism is really deep-rooted. It's not too long ago that Black people, you know, were enslaved. And then it's not mm. too long ago that they were, you know, emancipated. And it's not too long ago that they gained rights that were similar mm. to those of white people. Mm. Um, mm. Very recent part of our history. And a lot of these stereotypes and misinformation and, you know, have been inherited from generation to generation and are sort of rooted in the way that we view people who don't look like us. Hmm. Um, hmm. And it's, it's a matter of kind of retraining and breaking, breaking down how we think and then retraining ourselves to treat everyone you know, the same, you know, I am part of the reproductive justice and rights movement and health movement. And like, mm -hmm. I were, I, I recognize the parallels and the intersections of racial justice and reproductive justice. Um, but there are definitely scholars out there who've studied racial justice and who are, you know, there, there's a lot of material out there now that, you know, I've even gotten my hands on um, to educate myself because we all have a lot of work to do to move forward. And, you know, saying that, like, you're not racist or, you know, it, it, it goes beyond that. It, go, it, mm. it It's about being very deliberate and being very mindful in the way you speak and the way you treat others. And in, in the exam room, I can say that, I, I will say, I don't do this, but, like, I, you know, mm. I know there's, there, it's, it's written there, it's, it's in the literature that people are quick to make assumptions about black and brown people. Oh, they're lazy. Oh, they, they're mm -hmm. not going to use contraception or we need to force contraception on them because they have too many children or they've had too many abortions. Mm -hmm. And really being judgmental mm -hmm. and forgetting about compassion and forgetting about human beings and also forgetting to look at the, the deeper cause. Like, well, what about access to education? What about access to jobs? What about food security? Exactly. What about all of the social determinants of health? that are even more important to look at. What really impresses me about your work is inclusion of the word compassion and compassionate. And it is so important. And you've used it and you've practiced it throughout. And I, as I was reading your book, I could see so many places where you talk about compassion and you demonstrate it as well. Now, I also read that non-absolutism is one of the tenets of your religion, right? Jainism. Yes. And you draw compassion from that because you are not judging other people. So your practice is almost like judgment-free zone. And I was so impressed with that, Mira, because all of us are judgmental in our own right. Um, we've all been judgmental at some point in our lives. How do you try not to be judgmental? Like that's something that I would really like to learn and stick to. But, you know, and I, I am human and I, you know, I, I would be lying if I said I weren't judgmental, but I do think that I make a very conscious effort to not be and to pause, right? As 
before mm. I make a judgment, I, I pause. Before I assume something about somebody, I pause. And I think about this principle a lot, non-absolutism, um, which is the idea that no viewpoint can be 100% valid. Therefore, mm. every viewpoint has to have some amount of truth. And I think that mm. is just the most beautiful way of viewing the world and seeing other people for who they are and, you know, what they bring to the table. And I, 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 I really find myself like leaning into this concept multiple times a day. I, you know, like I said, and I, well, and I, and I will say that my, my patients really cha- challenged me on this concept. Hmm. Um, you know, I think that, you know, when, when you see somebody who is, a substance abuser and, you know, is in and out of rehab and, you know, is actively using drugs, you Mm. know, I'm like, gosh, you know, I wish. And then I'm like, you know what? No, I need to stop and treat them with compassion. And while they're struggling with an addiction, I'm going to take care of them and link them to resources one time, one more time and just keep giving them a chance. Right. Because I guarantee more often than not, they're being met with, you know, stigma and shame and, mm. and not being given a chance. So why not try and give this individual the resources and support them and lift them up and try to get them out of the, the condition that they're in? And I mean, it's, it's a constant practice and it's a constant challenge. And, and it's, I don't know, I'm, I'm, and, I, and I'm grateful for my patients for, for teaching me so much. What standards do you think we should hold our doctors to? I I think that at the very minimum, a doctor should mm. listen to you. You know, there was a there was a book many years ago that and in it, the, actually it was written by a physician, and now I'm forgetting. But it, there was a mention of a doctor will figure out what's going what's going on with you within the first like thirty seconds of you speaking meaning they just jump to like the most common diagnosis, right? But they, uh. but what we find ourselves getting into as physicians and as providers is just like going from patient to patient to patient to patient. But what really sets a doctor apart from another is the one who just takes just even a few minutes to really listen to the patient and to hear their concerns and see where they're coming from. And that is so true. So we used to live in Denver and doctors and their approach to patients is very different in Denver. They would sit you down, they would listen to you more. Unfortunately, in New York, it's different. And I'll be honest, I've been disappointed in doctors in New York because they treat you like a statistic. So you'll go in and based on whatever their initial prognosis is, they'll they'll treat you based on that. So it's not like individual care or as you talk about compassion or listening to you and listening to your body. These are the statistics that we have. And probably this is what's going on with you. And let's move on to the next patient. Right. And that's, that, and that's exactly what I mean, that it's about working in sexual and reproductive health care it's really common for here for my patients to seem really anxious about what's going on with their bodies. Yeah. And so I'll often say, you know what, let's take a moment. What is me? Ma- why are you feeling anxious right now? What, what is going on? And like, let's talk about that. Cause it's sometimes it seems that my diagnosis isn't enough that they're having all of these thoughts, but I, and that they're not sharing with me, but I can see it on their face. Yeah. And sometimes it's, 
gosh, like, you know, you told me I have herpes, but like, what is this going to mean? Like, what is this going to mean for dating in the future? How do I talk to a partner? Um, You know, will I be able to pass it on to somebody? And so it just takes like asking questions and listening and recognizing that there's more, there's more to the patient than just the diagnosis. They're wanting to know what that diagnosis means in the context of their whole life. So that, that is what, you know, I, I think that we should all be striving for when, when seeking medical care is, is the doctor who listens. Mira, where do you think abortion fits with our sex education? And what are the crucial points that a curriculum should address? Because when I think about all these things, I feel like patients should be well-informed as well, right? Mm-hmm. Not relying entirely on your healthcare provider for all the information. So how do we tie it in? And I have two young daughters and sometimes I think about it and coming from a culture that I grew up in, in Pakistan, we don't talk about sex. We don't talk about sex education. We think that somebody else should do the job for us. Yeah. How do we change that? Not just as parents, but as a collective society where we teach sex education more responsibly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I was born in South Carolina, but my parents are, were born and raised in India. Hmm. And, you know, we didn't talk about sex at all. Yeah. I was going to ask you, did you ever have a conversation with your mom or dad? You know, not really. I mean, now she's she's very, she's so sweet and I love her so much. <laughs> she's reading my book right now and learning so much and calls me, you know, every day with the question, oh, tell me more about this. Tell me more about that. But, you know, yeah. she is my mother. And while she's very supportive of abortion, premarital sex, oh, no, no. <laughs> so, you know, I'll take what I can get. Can't win it all. But um, she's, you know, and, and I respect that and I honor that. And I, and I know, you know, I, I'm sure you could share similar stories from your own experience. But, yeah. you know, I, I will say, though, from a public health perspective, we have to recognize that people are having sex, that young people are having sex. Hmm. Hmm. And the best way to protect them is to equip them with the knowledge and tools that they need to make good choices, period. And the way hmm. to do that is to support legislation that promotes standardized sex education in public schools and in all schools. And that curriculum should be designed by experts who work in this Mm. field and should be catered to the, to individual experiences such as the LGBT community, such as black and brown um, people. Mm. Um, And um, it should be evidence-based Um, as well as include the ideas of consent and what it means Mm. to consent to a a sexual um, behavior or um, a sexual practice. Um, Because I think that when we talk about non-consensual sex, we're oftentimes talking about penile vaginal sex that has occurred under force. But non-consensual sex can involve many other acts and we need to get into deeper, more nuanced discussions with young people about how to say no, how to feel comfortable saying yes, how to feel comfortable saying to slow down or that they're not ready um, and engaging in those, what, those tough conversations. But how do we involve parents in all of this? Because what I see is especially again, coming from a culture where it's not a norm to talk about these things, 
that parents tend to refrain from conversations like this. And I think it is counterproductive. I haven't done that with my kids yet, but I, I just, I'm trying to find a roadmap of how to sit down and have this conversation without feeling embarrassed or without feeling, I don't know, yeah, confused. I, I know what you mean. And I think that, well, first of all, when, when I'm seeing a young person in my, in my health center, one of the things I tell them is, you know, so in New York State, first of all, um, young people, so minors are able to access sexual and reproductive health care without their parents being involved. So they don't mm. need consent from their parents. They are able to get a pregnancy test, get birth control without their parents. So that actually improves mm. access because sometimes it's not always an option to involve your parents, right? Yeah. Um, and it's better to get the care than to not get the care. Mm -hmm. Um, now what I also tell young people though, is that, you know, I encourage you to engage a trusted adult in your sexual reproductive health experience and, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, having somebody that you trust to talk to them about what you're experiencing and what you're going through, um, so that you have a reliable resource. Now, sometimes that's the parents. Sometimes that's not, sometimes it's an older mm -hmm. cousin. Sometimes it's an older aunt uncle, um, you know, like a, a friend's mm. parent, someone that they feel like they can trust. Um, mm. And so I, I think starting with that conversation um, with your own children can be really helpful is that, you know, I know that th this is a really important topic. If you feel comfortable talking to me, I want to open that door. But if not, you know, how about X, Y, or Z? That's an interesting perspective on this. I never thought about it like that. In the end, Mira, if you were to describe America, given the political climate and the craziness around it, how would you describe it? Well, I fully believe, and I've said this before, that healthcare is a human right and that it shouldn't matter how much you make or if you are employed. It, it, every human being should have the ability to access health care. I think that it should be subsidized by the government. I think that, you know, just like education, how all young people have access to education mm -hmm. by accessing, you know, by being able to go to school for free, public school for free, I think the mm -hmm. same concept should be applied to health care. Um, unfortunately, mm. it's not. The insurance industry is very robust and heavily funded, and it'll be hard to move away from that system and go to a system that, you know, Canada um, and many other um, Euro European countries have. But I think that with the Affordable Care Act, we did make progress, and I would like to see more, um, more progress in that direction. I think it'll be baby steps. I don't even know if in my lifetime that'll happen. Mm. Um, but I am hopeful. Are you hopeful with current Democratic ticket? I had to ask this question because now that you're talking about healthcare as a fundamental human right, um, I am skeptical. And I just wanted to get your take on what your hopes are. I mean, I, I, I do. I am. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I am. I would be more hopeful with a progressive um, political mm. party mm. Um, in office. I, I would be more hopeful in terms of reproductive health being protected with mm. a progressive pol political party um, in office. 
I, you know, in terms of the whole healthcare system um, being redesigned and restructured, like I said, I don't think that that's going to happen in this lifetime, but I do think that mm. we will be able to make critical steps, you know, if we have the right people in office, steps such as appealing the Hyde Amendment and making it so that people can use their Medicaid to pay for their abortions, um, mm. you know, making it so that employers can't deny access to contraception based on their religious beliefs, making all these critical aspects of healthcare more accessible to people. That is what I would be hopeful for if, mm. you know, we can get these politicians in, in, in the house. So You're definitely more hopeful than I am. <laughs> I feel like uh, I was hopeful, um, I guess, what, eight months ago, but now I am, uh, I, I think I am more hopeful about electing lesser evil than anything else. I think, as you said, I would have preferred a progressive ticket 100 times over, but, you know, this is where we are and this is what we'll support, so... Yeah. Yeah, it remains to be seen. It it does what it this is what keeps me going, keeps me getting out of bed and working so hard to fight for justice though. Um Yeah. So this was wonderful, Mira. Thank you so much for this great conversation. Where can people find your book? So anywhere books are sold, I would highly recommend supporting independent bookstores. But the book is available um anywhere any online vendor will be able to sell the book to you and i will highly highly recommend this book to pro-choice pro-life people anybody because it gives such an interesting perspective and it humanizes the concept of abortion which is extremely important thank you so much Wow, this was intense. I hope you learned something about compassion and empathy for others. I had such a good time talking to Mira and listening to her, being so compassionate about her work and how dedicated she is to the kind of work that she's doing. If you like this episode, don't forget to share and you can follow us on our Instagram and Twitter for more information. Our Instagram is at ImmigrantlyPod. Our Twitter is immigrantly underscore pod. Until next time, take care.